The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Tuesday, May 1st, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now to breaking, or I guess yesterday's breaking news, Portland's KGW8. Stop the chase. Catch the crooks. Legos are hotter than ever. But some sold on resale sites might be hotter than you think. Oh my God, have they finally come out with a Jennifer Connelly in Career Opportunities Lego? Take Raji Azar. Definitely not. Police say he's accused of orchestrating the theft and resale of more than $50,000 in Legos. $50,000 in stolen Legos. This was big news in Portland. Not only did the NBC affiliate that we were playing have it, but so did ABC 13. They had their man on the scene, and their report included my favorite description, or technically abdication of a description, right up top. Neighbors say they had no idea anything unusual was going on, that this nondescript southeast Portland home was apparently a clearinghouse for stolen Legos. But even though the house was nondescript, and not, say, assembled from a few dozen pieces of molded plastic, the police knew they'd caught their man. You see, they built the case brick by brick. They're not sure if it was a pyramid scheme. They're just now seeing how all the pieces connect. Although almost all the Legos were just random parts, loose and unboxed, it was truly a setsless crime. When asked if the dogged investigator could just not let go of the incident, a police spokesman would not deign to reply because... Legos made in Denmark. Okay, lost you there. I just want to point out that for all the fun that I've had with this coverage, there is a mastery in storytelling, at least with one of the Portland affiliates here. ABC, they were all nondescript house and interviewing a neighbor who says, yeah, seems like a lot of Legos. But the KGW report was a masterclass in local television storytelling. Take this part. Undercover officers posing as Lego thieves met Azar at Southeast 103rd in Washington after he reached out to them. Okay, here's the visual. The reporter, I think her name's Catherine Cook, she's walking through a virtual world of Legos. When she says thief, right next to her, there's a big Lego thief. When she says cop, she's standing next to a life-size Lego cop. And the relevant characters are going in and out of focus. This is like a Scorsese film. This report includes interviews with two different store owners, security camera footage of Lego shoplifters, a live stand-up outside the police station, the requisite mug shots, and this trip into virtual reality. And most importantly, listen to her stick the landing. First, by comparison, let's uh, check in on the competition on ABC. Investigators want to give you a word of warning that if you encounter something on the internet that looks like too good a deal to be true, the chances are there's a good possibility that item is stolen. Come on, dude. You've taken News Kickers 101. It's always dressing layers. Only time will tell. Just good old-fashioned soap and water. And as best-in-class KGW puts it, if the prices look too good to be true, that buyer beware. The police are on the they spot. probably are. That's right. If the price seems too good to be true, it probably is. So wise. Thank you, local news, for telling us that thousands of times in my life. Of course, it clearly undermines the promise of Priceline, Groupon, MoviePass, Airbnb, Uber, almost every advertiser on the gist. That aside, you know, good rule of thumb. 
Only time will tell. On the show today, well, I just led with local crime. Let's close with weather. We're the gist team on your side. But first, today in Puerto Rico, there were demonstrations and clashes with police. A recently approved fiscal plan includes budget cuts in order for the government to restructure its crushing $72 billion public debt. That debt and Puerto Rico's tough financial situation is both a consequence and also very much a cause of the devastation wrought by Hurricane Maria. Laura Sullivan of Frontline and NPR has been reporting on the disaster and the stalled recovery for months. Her PBS report airs today, but first, she is here on The Gist. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? One thing that I often hear about the Trump administration is, you know, for as bad as you think it's going, wait until he has a big catastrophe. Wait until he has something like his Katrina moment. Seems like a plausible thing to say, except I was thinking about this. And what if he already has? What if Puerto Rico and Hurricane Maria were that exactly? And we just never really paid enough attention. Well, this week on NPR and on the PBS show Frontline, there will be a documentary called Blackout. It's about Puerto Rico, the aftermath of the storm, but also the backstory and the Wall Street connection, the finances that put Puerto Rico in the precarious place that it is. It is reported by Laura Sullivan. I don't know if her title is senior investigative reporter or investigative reporter, but let's just say this. We work together at NPR. She is the best <laughs> investigative reporter. Hello, Laura. How are you? Hi. We miss you every day still. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that, am I getting the Title right, best investigative reporter. I'm going with that. I'm going with that. Yeah, no, there's no senior there. I'm just a plain old (laughs) correspondent. So I think I've seen you in some hurricane zones before, uh, Maria and Puerto Rico. You've you've reported on hurricanes before, right? Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's the the grist that makes the job, right? So you're born and raised in this business, disasters. Um, so there must have been many things for, well, tell me when you first uh, went to Puerto Rico and there must have been many things familiar. Yes, I know the drill with hurricanes, <laughs> but I'm also wondering there must have been even early on things that were different about the response uh, in Puerto Rico than what you've seen before. Oh, from the, the moment we set foot in Puerto Rico. I mean, we had just come from Houston, Harvey in Houston, and then we went to Irma in Florida and you know, it was it was a disaster. They were both horrible, millions of people affected and 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 terrible things happening. But it kind of both of them had sort of a familiar feel. You know, we've gotten very good at disasters. FEMA comes in, sets up. There's some griping about this and that and and uh, you know, you how many people and how how much is the insurance going to pay and whatever. But there was a sense that FEMA was present. FEMA was there. They were opening up their shelters and they had open 
help for people. And then Florida, too, uh, it seemed like that. And there was a lot of very sort of like Americans are very used to like, okay, you know, the disasters hit. Now I rebuild. Now I recover. And a month in, that's what you expect. So when we got to Puerto Rico a month in, we came down. We actually, in the, one of the first things we did, we went out on a helicopter with Lieutenant General Jeffrey Buchanan. And, and he was still there. And we landed on this soccer field. And they were still giving out food and water. And this was like 30 days after the storm when most people have already started, you know, their whole rebuilding process and they're in the claims process and they're the power's on and things are, you know, people are getting their lives back together. This was like people had no water. They were living in completely in the dark and people didn't have food. I mean, this was like a humanitarian crisis. So from the very moment, it was like that. So was it a question of not enough aid being poured in by FEMA or more a question of the distribution of the aid? Why was this happening? Or maybe just as you document in your documentary, the starting point was far behind where it would be in Houston or even New Orleans. The the numbers alone were sort of crazy now that you, you know, when you can look back at it, they had three times as much food, twice as much water, eight times as many blankets in Florida. And we asked FEMA the head of the, you know, the Maria recovery effort, what what is happening here? And he said, well, it's hard to get supplies to Puerto Rico because, and this was the main reason, because it's an island, you mm-hmm. know? And so, it, but Puerto Rico's always been an island. It's been an yeah. island for as long as it's been a part of the United States. And it's had hurricanes before, 20 years ago in Georgia's. And they didn't have this level of problem, these level of delays. So the island thing didn't really explain what was happening. And so then we got sort of a trove of documents and internal emails. And what they show is basically an agency in chaos. They were struggling with their key contracts, their basic supplies, their own workforce. One of the documents we got showed that a quarter of the FEMA employees that they had working on this were, by their definition, quote unquote, unqualified to do the work. And then on top of that, there was this, what appears to be just a, a complete failure to pre-position supplies, which is something that FEMA is required to do, supposed to do ever since Katrina. This is like the new way of doing it is that you have warehouses, they're fully stocked, they're ready to go, and there's a disaster. And they just didn't do that in Puerto Rico. So they had pre-positioned 100,000 tarps in Florida. They pre-positioned 13,000 in Maria. And we had, you know, the head of, we spent a lot of time with the people on the ground who were in charge of FEMA on the ground in, in Maria. And they would say things like, we had as many as 500,000, 500 generators on the island before the storm. No, they mm-hmm. didn't. Their documents show they had 25. They said, we're going to have thousands of people are going to have their blue roofs up, these sort of heavier tarps that they tie down to houses. And you're going to get them within days. That definitely, that didn't happen. For months, the Blue Roof program was behind because FEMA did not pre-position enough plastic sheeting. So the Army Corps couldn't put the Blue Roofs up. They put 4,500 Blue Roofs up in Florida. They put 439 up in Puerto Rico in the first month. Yeah, with with arguably a greater need in Puerto Rico. Right, exactly. Um, So how much of the failings of FEMA were Trump administration? How much were agency itself? I mean, Trump had taken uh, charge, been sworn in about nine months before. And uh, from what I understand, his head to lead the agency, Brock Long, didn't get such bad reviews, at least in confirmation. Um, Is this a failing of the the agency that predates even the current administration? The feeling on the island among sort of top officials is that Puerto Rico did not get that administrative boost that a Mm -hmm. lot of disasters have gotten, where 
Bush or Clinton or whatever will say this this is a, a focused important. I'm going to put this task force together. I'm going to check in on it every day, and there's going to be hell to pay if this looks like it's going bad. What I heard from sort of top government sources was that that didn't happen in this storm, and that it wasn't that anybody wanted to see it go bad, but just that there wasn't sort of a focused effort. At one point, I asked the governor of Puerto Rico, when's the last time you talked to the president or, you know, the White House was, and he said more than a month ago. I mean, this was, you know, two months after the storm. I mean, this wasn't like, you know, back in the Katrina days, like heck of a job brownie even. I mean, like it was just different thing. And he did go down there. He tweeted a lot. President Trump tweeted about Puerto Rico in the beginning. I will say that the Trump administration has done a couple important things. They extended the deadline for some of the reimbursements for the power grid. That was very important. They also and they they allowed the money coming from the federal government to go for six months for 100 percent the payment of that, that's unusual. It's the first time it's happened for that long. But that's because Puerto Rico was in s- such dire need that, I mean, it was either that or the lights were never going to come back on. I want to ask you about the power grid because I, I see different statistics and I'm not quite sure what it means. You always, or in the beginning when we were paying attention, this percent of the power isn't on that percent. Does that Did that mean that 70% of Puerto Ricans were without power for months and months? Well, usually it meant that it, the numbers were far worse than what they were saying. So it was uh-huh. like they, they would say 60% of the power grid's back on. But what they meant was 60% of the output of the power grid. And so it yeah. wasn't like if you were, if you were down down the road from a power line that had fallen over, that didn't help you anyway. At this point, it looks like 100,000 people are still without power. 100,000 still without power. Right. Which is insane. I mean, imagine that's happening in New York. I mean, imagine nobody would put up with that. Right. And, 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 from, and when you were there, I mean, two months afterwards, three months afterwards, oh, yeah. it was, it was hun- many oh, yeah. hundreds of thousands It was like three more. quarters of the island was still out. Was this the fault of the power? Again, this is the question of what about their starting point? Was their power grid so degraded to a state where it was insufficient to begin with? Yeah. I mean, they were they had poles that they hadn't replaced in years that needed to be replaced. And so then Maria comes through and snaps them like matchsticks. You know, they have these power plants that are 50 years old. We don't have that in, in the mainland, but in our, the rest of the U.S. territories, their, their oldest power plants are like 17, 20 years old, not 50. Yeah. And so they didn't, they needed, they needed a whole bunch of money, but they didn't have that money because Puerto Rico was spending all of its money on debt service. They were paying right. their debt. So they didn't have any money. And it wasn't just the power grid. It was the bridges and the roads and the water pumping stations. And the whole thing went down because it was so fragile to begin with because they hadn't spent any money on this stuff. Now, I have to say, you documented this well. And you don't force conclusions on us. Uh, You quote people. But this was, to me, at least the part of the documentary that raised the most questions. I understand that Puerto Rico was in a vulnerable position and they needed money. Um, However, these were... Elected officials Mm -hmm. who took out bad loans, right? These were elected officials who made bad financial choices. Uh, The the elections weren't rigged. When the governor of Oklahoma does this, we say, bad governor. Shouldn't we to some... Yeah, Wall Street's down there selling them. And there are quotes Mm -hmm. in your documentary about, you know, maybe Wall Street shouldn't have uh, sold us these these, uh, loans at these rates. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what Wall Street does. Maybe they shouldn't, but that's what Wall Street does. So who's to blame for that is my question. So, I mean, the the thing is that... Nobody's going to fault the nation's largest banks for 
going in there and making a buck where they see a buck can be made and everything. And that's totally legal. It was a 50-50 partnership here. You know, Puerto Rico took on this debt and the banks were happy to make millions and millions and millions of dollars in profit doing this. And that worked out fine. What ended up happening, though, is that the banks, in some cases, took it a step farther. And they created these special funds in Puerto Rico that you can only have in Puerto Rico because the mainland doesn't allow this kind of stuff. We have all these financial regulations that don't apply in Puerto Rico. So you couldn't have these super risky bond funds that they did down in Puerto Rico that could only be sold to Puerto Ricans. And so at the end of the day, all these Puerto Ricans ended up holding the bag. And and the one thing I want to say, though, I would take it farther than Puerto Rico politicians for doing this because, I mean, it's super easy to fault Puerto Rico politicians for this. I mean, why didn't they just cut spending? Don't borrow, just cut spending, right? Cut school budgets and police budgets and whatever else. Mm-hmm. But you, but you could, already told me. You already told me about these utility poles that snap like twigs because they haven't been right. replaced in fifty but years. But you could ask every voter the same question: Who do you like better, the politician who takes away all of your favorite programs and gives you nothing, yeah. Yeah. or the one who tells you that you can have everything you want and someone else will pay for it twenty years from now? And right. so I would say to you that. I think historically, Americans have always, Puerto Ricans and mainlanders, have always chose the latter. So it's not just Puerto Rico. But you have to remember what happened, why they were even in this choice to begin with, is because in 1996, Congress took away a tax break that lured pharmaceutical and manufacturing companies to the island. And the island was doing great. It was booming. And then Congress took it away to pay for programs on the mainland. And then the island spun into recession. So, yes, at that point, the, the politicians should have been like, well, look, we're just going to cut schools in half and your police in half and health care. And we're just we got to go. We got to go austere here. But that's hard to do because voters don't like that. They don't vote for Voter, those politicians. And, and to me, it's interesting to talk about voters because the whole premise of America is that you get better results with a democracy. <laughs> so here we are with Puerto Rico. We're not giving them the vote. So how much blame can you give them if the only people representing them are people like, you know, as we speak, the governor of New York is in Puerto Rico because he has Puerto Rico constituents. But they don't have a vote in Congress. If someone wants to take away their tax break, there's yeah, not a natural nobody. block to stand up and say, don't do this. Right, exactly. You can't, you know, and it went to mainland. I mean, it went to pay for for us folks living here on the mainland. They're like, that tax break is too big, so we're going to take it back and use it to pay for stuff here. And, you know, basically, like, screw Puerto Rico, too bad. What are you going to do? And there's nothing they can do. And what, There's nothing they can do, but maybe it's just a natural consequence of, of the fact that they're a territory without a vote. Right, yeah. for more than 100 years. They have more residents in Puerto Rico as almost half the states in the country. Mm-hmm. This is 3.5 million Americans. And for 100 years, they've been sort of been treated like this sort of, like, bastard stepchild of the United States. Literally second-class citizens. Absolutely. Literally. And, yeah. Like in, in in Wall Street, we call second-class stock the stock <laughs> without the voting shares. That's yes, what they that's are as citizens. They, are. they yeah. have no vote. And they have no real power. And there's no, you know, Texas and, and Florida have two senators and all their lawmakers who can go bash down the door for recovery money. What does Puerto Rico have? A, com- a governor who can maybe can come complain a little? And then that didn't go so well when the mayor complained about Trump and then he came down hard on her and said Puerto Ricans need to do more for themselves in that tweet. They, they have perhaps the power of moral suasion, which is a diminished power in this day and age, right. I would argue. And what was the craziest thing about this is that 
in Puerto Rico, people just did not complain. It, just even trying to get somebody to sound angry, you know, for to get the tape together. I was like, somebody's got to sound pissed off here. I mean, God, you spend, you know, 10 minutes in Florida and you got an earful, you know. We spent seven months in Puerto Rico and I'm like, is anybody on this island angry? You know, they're just, it's just sort of a culture of not complaining. The last thing I want to ask you is what do you believe the death toll to be? Oh, the one I can say from our reporting is that it's higher than the initial. I mean, those initial counts were way too low. And, and, and it's a question of what are you counting? If somebody dies of starvation or dehydration six weeks after the storm, is that the hurricane? Or is that FEMA? I mean, what's the, you know, who's responsible And that literally for that? happened? Pe- people were dying of That's starvation? That's what people, well, people were saying that dehydration, especially in the hills, could have played a role in people's death. They were saying that people's lack of the ability, you know, a lot of the hospitals were closed, couldn't get the care they needed, and that precipitated and, and ushered along their death faster. So it, it's a difficult thing to count. Okay, but ju- just to go back to my original intro, people making the point about Donald Trump. What if he has a huge disaster like Katrina or the BP oil spill? But I looked at the numbers. BP spent $65 billion on cleanup thereabouts. Maria is going to cost closer to $100 billion. And the death toll, I think 12 people died on the rig. Some say this is in the mid-hundreds, the death toll, just based on death spiking for whatever reasons after this disaster, when you compare the before and the after. So Actually, this is much worse than the other disasters that other presidents have faced. And we still say Donald Trump has yet to face his big disaster, which to me tells you everything about the attention we pay and nothing about the actual facts of what he has actually had to deal with. We had a ton of people in Puerto Rico say this is Trump's Katrina. The question that makes it a Katrina, though, is how much the mainland, the people in the mainland care. And people cared in the United States about New Orleans because it saw a city underwater for a month and it saw those images and people were outraged by what a mess and a disaster that post-disaster was. The question is how much do Americans care about their fellow Americans in Puerto Rico? That's what defines whether or not this is Trump's Katrina. Well, I hope after your documentary on PBS Frontline and also a couple-part series on NPR, people will, in fact, care a little bit more. I'm sure they will if they hear it. Laura Sullivan is the reporter behind Blackout in Puerto Rico. Thank you so much, Laura. Always a pleasure, Mike. And now the spiel. Today is May 1st. Workers of the World Unite. The anti-penultimate day of Star Wars Day countdown. May 1st is May Day, and May Day is both a celebration and a crisis call. That's strange. And if there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? How about Ray Parker? Because May 1st is his birthday. But here's how I look at May 1st. I look at it like spring. Now, the Vernalists will tell us March 20th is when spring starts. That doesn't feel like spring. The meteorological calendar says spring starts March 1st, which is crazy. That really doesn't feel like spring. In fact, I think this spring that we've experienced here in the Northeast and maybe in your part of the country by a measure that I invented 
has been the worst spring so far ever. And I'll tell you about that measure in a second. Now, I've got to tell you, my relationship with April, which just passed, I don't even get mad at April anymore. I've taken to looking at April like just a a chance to work out all the Fahrenheit kinks. It's cold for two days, then it's hot for two days, then it's cold, then it's really cold. I don't hold it against April. It's spring's out-of-town tryout. If we need to cut a nor'easter from Act 2, that's when we use April. I used to look forward to April, but I have been burned, or pointedly, not burned, not at all. So now I regard April as just practice, spring training, if you will. But now it's May, and by the time May comes, well, Mother Nature fluctuating, damn it, I need it to be spring. Those hardliners who stick to the astronomical calendar tell us it's going to be summer soon. And you know about those meteorological fundamentalists? All they do is they say, what month does the season start? The first of that month is when we will consider the season to start. So they're saying that spring will be over in a month. It has not even started yet. I just want spring. I just want some spring. In Chicago, the month of April saw 16 days. This was a record. 16 days when the temperature at some point or another dropped below 32 degrees. 32 degrees is freezing, and 16 days is most of the days. April is 30 days. 16 were freezing. Most of your April Chicago days had some amount of freeze to them. In upstate New York, Albany had five days above normal, temperature-wise, in April, and 23 below. Buffalo had six days above normal and 20 below. And to put this in even more disturbing terms, when they say normal, you realize they're talking about normal for Albany and Buffalo. I don't usually talk about the weather because wherever you're listening to this show, your experience surely differs. You just think about it. I mean, Pushkin was undoubtedly influenced by those Russian winters, Gauguin's entire palette influenced by the temperate palette of the South Seas. So this, this here temperamental artist, I'm going to be affected by the weather too. And it's not so much the coldness, the crushing coldness, even the lack of warmth. It's the brief bursts of warmth, and then they pull it back. They trick you. And there is a ton of research that says that that is pretty much the formula for unhappiness. Happiness depends not on how well things are going, but on whether things are going better or worse than expected. So you give us a little warmth, and you tell us that it's spring, and then you pull it back. That's the best way to be unhappy or the worst way to be happy. In England, they did an experiment called the Great Brain Experiment. They proved this point about happiness. They had 18,000 people, and they hooked them up to MRI machines, and they play a game with point. And it didn't matter how many points the people won. What mattered was how winning or losing compared to the expectations that were formed during past experiences. And the study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. This would seem very depressing for humankind, but maybe not for the people who the experiment was actually done on, because when I said Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the nation in question is Britain, and MRI machines are inside, and so this got the people out of the dampness. But this is my point. Weather affects us. London has, by and large, worse weather than New York, but everyone in London knows this and they expect it. So in London, it's stiff upper lip and I as a New Yorker am left to wonder and worry and never know what to expect. 
I don't know if this is the worst spring in years so far based on measures like average temperature, days below freezing. I told you some stats in some cities where that is the case, but it is the worst based on this gauge that I've invented. It is the number of days when you put winter away thinking, well, I'm not going to need this winter stuff anymore. And then you have to drag them out again. I've done this six times so far in April. I've had this one hat that I've closeted and decloseted, then recloseted and decloseted so much that you'd think I've invited James Dobson over to do conversion therapy. This is my gauge, the in and out of the closet, the winter's over. No, it's not index. It's the winini. Winter's over. No, it's not. And this has been the worst Wonini winter slash spring in years. And so now it's May 1st. And if winter is not over by now, I will cut you, winter. Back off, Jack Frost. I got a t-shirt, and that t-shirt has a v-neck, and I got some breathable trousers, and they are coming out of the closet, and they are not going back for months. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname now reports on a string of heinous murders. Several original members of the Little Rascals have been killed. Police suspect the slayings are our gang related. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, has this story on aglets of area sneakers being separated from shoelaces. Police are asking you to contact them if you have any tips. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He's investigating the theft of Mr. Potato Head accessories, specifically the appendages that slot into the side of Mr. Potato Head. The suspects are said to be heavily armed. The gist. We are looking into a crime committed by a person or persons who are actually unbiased, but the public believes to be merely blasé. Police have named a person of disinterest. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>